The reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in and through all and in all. Thank you, Meg and Willa. Let's pray. Lord, Make these words come alive to us. Help us to see them as they are, which is the living word of God, breathed out by your Holy Spirit. So as we, as we look at this passage, let us apply ourselves to it. And we pray for unity as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please open your Bibles or your Bible apps to the book of Ephesians, which is a short letter near the end of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. Have you ever experienced true unity? I think many of us have, or at least have had tastes of it. Maybe it's in your marriage where you've experienced the, the oneness of, of you and your spouse coming together as one flesh, forming a new family, being united in heart, in mind, and body. That's a miraculous, wonderful thing. Unity. Maybe you've experienced unity with a sports team. You know, you were through time spent together on field, you have, have a way of bringing out the best in each other and working as one and making amazing plays out there on the field. Maybe you experienced unity in the Army or the Navy or the Marines or um, some military service where you were part of a band of brothers who, whose very lives depended on being unified, on working together. Or maybe it's with a friend or a sibling Though you have differences, you feel like you're on the same wavelength. You understand each other. You can finish each other's sentences. Whether, whether you've had many of those experiences or few, I'm here today to tell you that we all have access to a deep, soul-fulfilling unity. It's a unity that should be the envy of the world. What is it? It's the unity we have in Christ as the body of Christ. I'm, I'm preaching on this today. Uh, you know, we've kind of finished one sermon series, and the week after Children's Day, we'll start another in the book of Proverbs for the summer. But I wanted to pause and, and simply reflect on who we are as a church body and reflect on the unity that we must have and experience and live out in Christ. 
When Paul wrote the letter that is now in our Bibles called Ephesians, he had unity on his mind. Many scholars believe that this letter was written to be circulated throughout different churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so it doesn't deal with any particular problems of any particular church, but it gives us this majestic panorama of the gospel, of what God has done through Christ to save sinners and to reconcile them to himself. And Paul, is, Paul says that when that happens, people are also miraculously reconciled and unified with each other. But living out that unity is hard. It takes work. The biggest threat to unity in the early church was the friction between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Gentiles were those who were not Jews. And um, there was so much cultural division between these groups that a, an observant Jew would not even eat with a Gentile. And Gentiles thought Jews were really weird. I mean, just they're strange. Jews would sometimes would pray, uh, many male Jews would pray a prayer every day that said, Lord, thank you that I am not a Gentile. So there was deep division in the world between these two groups. And guess what? They both started to come to Christ. And then they had to figure out how to live out the unity they had in Christ. What do Christians divide over today? Race, politics, red-blue issues, um, theology, um, traditions, church carpet color, <laughs> not at our church, thankfully. And we really can't ta <coughs> tackle the larger issues that keep denominations apart from working together. But what we can talk about today is this church. How are we doing in this part of the body of Christ to stay unified. So as followers of Jesus, we have this precious gift of unity. And the question is, how well are we living it out? My message today is really simple. It's this. Please pursue unity. Please pursue unity. And as we apply ourselves to this text in Ephesians 4, I want to break down Paul's teaching in two points. First, we'll look at how to behave to maintain unity. And second, we need to behold the source of our unity. So without giving too much of this sermon away, it depends on what we do and how we treat each other, but more deeply on what God has done and who he is. So behave and behold. So this passage begins with Paul making a very strong plea. He begins in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul is quite literally a prisoner when he's writing this letter. He's in a prison, probably in Rome, writing letters to churches throughout the Roman world that he has started. And so these words don't come cheap. He has suffered, and he's imprisoned even now for the gospel. It's a way of saying, heads up, these words matter. 
And so with this serious tone, Paul says, I urge you. You could almost translate this phrase as, I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. To what? To live a, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's the calling they have received? Well, if you read through the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's so clear. A Christian is someone who God has chosen and called to know him. Called to be saved from sin through Jesus' death on the cross. Called to be adopted into God's family. Called from death to life through the sheer grace of God. Through faith in Christ. That's the calling they received and we have received. And isn't it so liberating that our job is not to create that calling or to save ourselves, but simply to live because God has saved us, to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. So Paul is saying, live a life worthy of the calling. Live as the forgiven person you are. Live as the loved person you are. Lived as the free person you are. And Paul begins to explain what that looks like in terms of our relationships, starting in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Let's look at the first half of this. Humble and gentle. If you have a King James Bible or an older translation, it will say, with all lowliness and meekness. I like those words. <laughs> so humility or lowliness means thinking of yourself as no better than the next person. A humble person is someone who never toots their own horn, never insists on their way of doing things, never assumes that they are right. A humble person is always making themselves low and lifting others up. Similarly, gentleness or meekness is that quality of being easy to be around. A meek person is never harsh or in your face. They never have a point to prove or an ax to grind. And they don't need those kinds of power plays and, and saber rattling because they have a deep inner strength that comes from God. Before Jesus came along, these concepts of humility and gentleness were discounted. They were, they were um, not prized in the Greco-Roman world. Humility was considered a contrived social behavior that you needed in the presence of a social superior, kind of a fake fawning humility. And meekness or gentleness was considered weak. I mean, meek even rhymes with weak, right? probably didn't in Greek. Um, and today, even these, <laughs> that wasn't all supposed to rhyme. <laughs> even today, these things are, are not prized. I guarantee no one interviewing for a manager's position has ever put on his resume personal qualities, gentleness, and lowliness. No ESPN commentator has said, that quarterback is really showing his stuff today. Did you see how meek and lowly he was out on the field? Of course not. The world defines power as influence and wealth and intellect and superiority and, and money. 
That's how they define greatness, rather. But, but we follow the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus. And he said, I am gentle and humble of heart, Matthew 11. Jesus says, in my kingdom, lowliness is high, gentleness is strong. And so that's who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. Let's, let's look at the second half of this sentence. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I don't think this needs a lot of explanation. You know what patience is. You know what it means to bear with someone. It means putting up with that person who is annoying you, overlooking an offense for the second and fourth and tenth time, um, having a very long fuse attached to a very small bomb. Patience, bearing with one another. Now, verses 1 through 3 are actually one long sentence in Greek, which would say something like, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and here's the final emphasis, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, we need all these behaviors, humility, gentleness, patience, love, in order to keep the unity of the Spirit, to stay unified. I want you to notice something that's really crucial here. Where does our unity come from? From the Spirit. It's the unity of or created by the Spirit. We do not have to create the unity we have, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. So when I believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in me. And when you believe in Jesus, the same Spirit resides in you. That's what gives us us our unity. Not because we're all from Vermont, and we're not. Not because we all see the world the same way, we don't. Not because we're all parents or all singles. It's through the Holy Spirit. We have this precious gift of unity. Right? And our job is not to make it happen, but simply to keep it, to guard it, to remain at peace with one another, which happens through love. Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians and us to eagerly and zealously guard the unity that we have through the Spirit. And so if we're going to obey Jesus, we need to be as committed to unity as we are to any other thing that matters in life. What else do we make every effort to do? We make every effort to keep our kids safe. We make every effort to stay fed. We make every effort to beat cancer. Do we make every effort to maintain unity in the spirit? Let me share something I've observed in my time as your pastor. Some of you have been here for a long time, literally your whole lives. Others have come more recently. And I've noticed that when squabbles or disagreements happen, and they happen, it's inevitable, I've noticed the tendency to, to pull away instead of 
leaning in, in love. Some people pull away by leaving the church. And unfortunately, they're not here for us to speak to today. Some people pull away by gradually becoming less involved and going to the fringes. But others pull away inside. They come to church, they're with the body of Christ, but there are barriers between them and others. People they don't want to talk to, subjects they don't want to touch. We begin to have lower expectations for what church should be like and what the church family should feel like. You learn to kind of disengage internally. And I think that is the, one of the greatest threats to our unity. Conflict is not the greatest threat to unity. It's a lack of love, a lack of being willing to work through conflict and bear with one another in love. That's what Jesus longs for us, is to experience the unity he secured for us at the cross. Let me give you a few action points for how we can live this out, for what to do about this. The first thing I'll say is about church membership. If you consider this your church home, your church family, and have not become a member, and I'm looking out, I think a minority of you are in this position, but nevertheless, I urge you to become a member of this church. Some of you might not know what that means. Well, church membership is essentially making a formal commitment to live out your faith in Jesus in this particular church with these people. To say, I promise to bear with you in love. I promise to forgive you when you hurt me. I promise to raise my family or to live out my faith in this church family. And I promise to use my time and my talents and my treasure for Jesus' work here through this church. Membership is important because it it's kind of like a, a marriage vow that keeps us going. We can lean on it when we don't feel like doing the hard work of unity, right? We're going to have a membership class in August, just a few hours on probably a Sunday afternoon after church to really talk more about what this means for those who are not yet members. And I, I encourage you to come to that. More info to come in, in the next, in a few weeks. Um, here's the next thing. Well, if you are a member, revisit that membership covenant that you made and ask God to help you live it out. There are some beautiful phrases in that membership covenant. So next, this is more personal to all of us. If there is a person here in this church that you avoid, either because you've had conflict with them or because they get on your nerves or because you simply overlook them, I challenge you to begin to pray for that person regularly. And as God moves you to go toward them in love, see if there's a way you can serve them. See if there's anything that you need to do to restore the relationship if there's been conflict. Do the hard work of pursuing unity because it is close to Jesus' heart. 
So please pursue unity. Well, the next point, and this will be a lot shorter, is uh, we need to behold the source of our unity. So, yes, there are things we need to do, behaviors we need to have, humility, gentleness, love, patience, but Paul isn't done. After telling us how to behave, he invites us simply to behold, to, to gaze upon the source of our unity. And so let's read verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you notice any repeating words in that, those sentences? Was there like one repeating word you noticed? The word one, right. He says it seven times in these sentences. The point is obvious that we are all part of one body, the body of Christ. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit in us. We have one hope. We're not looking at, you know, looking in different directions for the future. We have one hope, resurrection and eternal life with Jesus. We have one faith, the faith we confessed through our one baptism, right? When we were baptized into Christ, it's not like uh, some of us were, were baptized into, uh, yeah, never mind, that, that wasn't going to work. We are simply one in Christ. <laughs> and it all comes from one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a deep unity built into the very structure of our faith. And to live in contradiction to that is to actually go against the grain of God's will for your life, of God's will for the universe. Right? A Christian writer named A.W. Tozer put it this way, 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork will automatically be tuned to one another. 100 pianos tuned to the same fork will automatically be tuned to one another. When we're unified with God through Christ, we are automatically unified to one another. So, Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must behold the deep, abiding unity we have. It exists. It is there. It's a fact through Jesus. Sometimes in churches like ours, where almost all of us are white, almost all of us are Vermonters, almost all of us have grown up in the church, a church, we are tricked into thinking that our unity comes from those things, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Those are surface-level things. Our unity comes from Jesus. And when we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, we will remember this. There are a lot of differences even in this church. Despite the superficial similarities, we have different ideas, different perspectives, different personalities, different um, dreams, but we are one in Christ. I'm grateful for where our church is. Not every church has made it through the past year and a half and stayed unified. Um, 
I've heard tragic stories of some churches uh, dwindling in attendance and on the verge of closure. Some have fractured because of politics or the vaccine or some nonsense. Let's never let political nonsense uh, disturb our unity as a church. That is an end. That is a, a plot of Satan. And so we don't have any major conflict right now, but I, I long for us to live out the deep, true unity that is ours in Christ. Let it be the envy of our neighbors. Even, even on uh, the 13th, next Sunday, when people show up for the barbecue, I hope that they would see something that defies explanation. They look around and say, what is it that all these people have in common? What is it that makes these people love each other like they do? Right? And then we can say, well, let me tell you, it's Jesus. But unity is even for our own benefit, for ourselves. When we are doing the things Paul tells us here, practicing humility and gentleness and patience and love, we will enjoy new depths of fellowship that we never thought possible. Right? The church will be a place where you can show your true self without fear of rejection. It'll be a place where you're allowed to make mistakes without judgment, where you can use your gifts without being self-conscious, where you can share your true opinion without being written off, where you can let it all hang out and never lose the love of your brothers and sisters. Don't you want that? The world has examples of what can happen when a group of people are unified. Last year, and I'll close with this illustration, I read a book called The Boys in the Boat. And this book tells the true story of the University of Washington rowing team that surprised the world. I didn't know anything about rowing before reading this book, but um, rowing was an elite East Coast sport dominated by schools like Harvard and Yale. And the University of Washington was made up of this, this motley crew of the sons of lumberjacks and day laborers and, and people living in poverty. But this team of young men were doggedly committed to rowing together. They rowed at dawn and at dusk. They, they trained in freezing rain and high wind and sea swells. They practiced the art of rowing so that their eight bodies worked together like a perfectly synchronized dance. Every single oar blade dipping into the water at the same instant and pulling with the same strength and coming out at the same instant, following the call of their coxswain in the front of the boat. But perhaps more importantly, they were unified out of the boat. They liked each other. They had each other's backs. They were friends with one another. They weren't competing with one another. And so they qualified to be the U.S. team at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. The German team was highly favored to win. The Italian team was highly favored. But the nine boys from Washington rode with all their hearts in perfect unity and came home with the gold medal. How much greater and deeper 
is our unity in Christ and how much more is at stake than a gold medal. So please pursue unity. Amen.